and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. We all want our freedom, and for many of us, freedom means doing whatever we want, whenever we want. But at some point, we may discover that our freedom isn't so free. Teaching team member Jeff Norris continues the series, The Authentic Life, with the second part of this message entitled Gospel Freedom, which covers 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 1 of chapter 11. For more information and to watch or hear other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. If you've been with us the last uh, few weeks, you know that we've been in a sermon series that we've called The Authentic Life. And uh, this is a series that's walking, we're walking through different parts of 1 Corinthians and hitting some certain themes that the Apostle Paul addresses in this very, very crucial and important letter. We've hit on everything from, uh, we started out talking about folly and wisdom, the wisdom of the world versus what the world perceives to be the folly of the cross. And how everything that we do has to be centered as Christians, first and foremost, on the cross. And then Randy led us in some more practical teaching from 1 Corinthians 7 on marriage and singleness and widows and divorce and all the implications, what God would have to say about those issues. And then last week, Caleb led us in introducing us to this topic of freedom, Christian freedom. What freedom do I have to partake or not to partake, to go there, to not go there, to, to do what I want to do or not do what I want to do, those kind of questions. So I'll lead us this week in part two of this conversation, this teaching on freedom. And then uh, the next two weeks are going to be ones that you won't want to miss. This is when Randy will lead us through 1 Corinthians 11, and we'll talk about authentic manhood and womanhood, biblical manhood and womanhood. Now, this is a topic that has been critical for the church throughout the history of the church. But I, maybe I would even say, given the current circumstances that we are facing culturally, all the myriad of, of definitions and, and thoughts and opinions on what does it mean to be a man or a woman and identify as a man or a woman, these kind of things, next week and the week after will be critical, be crucial as Randy addresses this tough topic but from the biblical standpoint. And he wanted me to emphasize, this is for all of us, what he'll be leading us through in the next two weeks, but particularly for our youth. Uh, so if you have a youth in your family, uh, or if you just know one, or you see one on the street on the way here, pick them up, bring them. <laughs> it's gonna be important for them to hear, to hear this message. But we'll jump in this week with uh, thinking about freedom. Freedom in Christ, picking up from where we left off last week. We all know what a mirage is, I think. A mirage is something that you think is there, but in the ultimate reality, it's not. We all know how hot su southern summers are. I can remember in my neighborhood growing up on the black asphalt, there was a hill. I lived in Woodland Hills, so it was a, a hilly neighborhood, and you'd come up a hill and walk in on the street, and you'd get about eye level with the crest of the hill, and it would look like there was water going across is the steam or whatever that is scientifically, I don't know. I, I didn't research it, just wanted a nice little illustration. But <laughs> little little water at the top, and then you get up over and you get closer and it's not there. We've heard about this in the desert, how people be in the desert, and they'll think that they see water off on the horizon, they get closer, it's not there. I use that as an example to say that oftentimes the freedom that we think we have often is, is no freedom at all. 
because it's driven by impure motives and it's driven by selfishness and even something deeper than that that I'll speak to in just a moment. There's many times in my life personally where uh, I thought I had some freedom that ultimately was no freedom at all. And maybe the most poignant example of that is my first year in college. I have the quintessential Southern Christian testimony. I grew up in church, raised in a great Christian home, taught the gospel, believed the gospel, faith in Jesus. But as I went off to college, I began to believe the lie and I, I, I swallowed the hook completely that I deserve to be free. And here was my definition of freedom. I'll use the same definition that Caleb led us in last week, which is freedom oftentimes as we define it is doing what I wanna do when I wanna do it and how I wanna do it. So that's how I lived my freshman year. Now, I lived with three goals my freshman year, three, three focuses. Now, I didn't write down, I didn't go into my freshman year and say, okay, here are my three goals for this year. But in, in hindsight, I can clearly define this is what I live for. And for the many years that I did campus ministry, I had the opportunity to speak to pretty much every fraternity house each year at the University of Georgia when I served there, the University of Alabama when I served there, when I would, I would go into these fraternity houses and I would share my story and I'd tell these guys, these are the three things I live for my freshman year. And here's what I'd tell them. I'd say, I, I, I went to as little class as possible. I partied as much as possible. And I tried to take as many girls as possible on dates. Now, I was really good at two of three of those. You can imagine which, <laughs> which one I wasn't. If you're confused at all, I'll just let the cat out of the bag. It was the third one. <laughs> but those were kind of my aims. Well, let me tell you where that got me. This freedom that I had that was just so amazing, at least I thought. I got to the end of my freshman year and I had a 1.6 GPA. <laughs> if you're young and you don't know what that means, it's just not good. <laughs> not even close to good. So I was in trouble academically. I got a letter. My parents also got a letter. I didn't know that. <laughs> from the university, the official letterhead from the university, uh, Mr. Norris, you have one semester to bring up your GPA to an overall 2.0. Wow, that's really knocking it out of the park. <laughs> or you're out of the university. You're kicked out. So there was, there was great trouble that my freedom brought me, my so-called freedom brought me academically, but it was spiritually and emotionally by the end of that year, I was empty. And I'm not just saying that because it's not, that's what pastors say. You set up something and you talk about, oh, it let me down. I need Jesus. No, I, I really mean that. I was spiritually and emotionally empty and miserable. The freedom that I thought I had was actually no freedom at all. It wasn't what I thought it was. It was a mirage. The freedom to do what we want, when we want, how we want, isn't Christian freedom, it's idolatry. That's what we're gonna see in this text. That's what Paul is addressing, addressing in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Now let me get, bring you up to speed on kind of where we are in this letter. Paul is answering questions that the Corinthian believers in the church have written to him. So this says 1 Corinthians, but this was not the first letter that, of correspondence between Paul and the church. They had written him a previous letter, maybe many previous letters, we don't know, but for sure one previous letter. And in this letter, they had asked him 
specific questions. So in chapter seven, he begins to get into those questions after several chapters of just kind of explaining the doctrines of the faith and addressing some of the issues in the church as far as divisions in the church and sexual morality in the church. Then he gets to chapter seven and he says, now concerning marriage, meaning now concerning what you wrote me about. So they asked him about marriage, about singleness, widows, divorce, this kind of thing. And then they ask him about what this topic is that we're in in chapters eight, nine, and 10, where he's spending three chapters devoted to answering this question about eating meat that has been sacrificed to idols. Now, this would have been a huge deal in first century Corinth, in the Roman Empire, where they would have been all kinds of gods and lots of temples in the city of Corinth, as big as it was, as, as impactful and influential of a city as it was, as a trade route, there would have been many temples within the city devoted to various different gods, pagan gods. And in these temples, they would sacrifice animals to these gods. And they would take the meat from these animals and they would eat it there within their religious service that they were having in the moment as they sacrificed to these gods. But then whatever was left over, they would send to the markets nearby and sell it. And so the Corinthian believers, as we can gather, have written asking kind of a twofold question. One is, can we eat meat sacrificed to idols in general that's from the market? And then secondly, can we go to the temple? Is it okay for us to go to the temple and eat the meat there? Now that second question is more of what Paul is addressing in chapter 10, which is where we'll be today. Caleb last week led us in chapters eight and nine where he was addressing more the issue of well, what about meat sacrificed to idols sold in the marketplace? And Paul essentially says, yes, we know that the meat is meat. That God has given us those animals, that the meat is fine, and, and we know those gods don't even exist. Those aren't true gods. There's only one true God. And so, yes, you can eat the meat, but be willing and ready to quickly lay down your rights to eat that meat if it causes someone, a brother around you, to stumble, someone with a weaker conscience. So you may know it's okay to eat that meat, but you say, you know what, I'm going to refrain for the sake of my neighbor. That's the big picture application of chapters seven and eight. Paul's spending three chapters answering this question, as I mentioned a minute ago. Chapters seven and eight, if you wanna think big picture, big umbrella, the big umbrella of chapters seven and eight is that Paul is saying, be willing to lay down your rights, the freedom that you have for the sake of your love for your neighbor. Now in chapter 10, he's gonna take that one step further and he's gonna say, be willing to lay down your rights, the freedoms that you have for the sake of your love for God. You notice what he's doing? He's taking the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself, and he's using that as the undergirding foundation for his answer to their question. Yes, there's freedom in Christ. Yes, all things are permissible, as you say in your Corinthian culture. Yes, all things are permissible, but are they helpful? So be willing to lay down your rights for the sake of neighbor, for love of neighbor, and for love of God. This love of God is one, is the one that we're uh, focusing on today. So we're thinking about this issue of freedom and idolatry. Paul is gonna show us, and we'll, we'll look at it here in just a moment. He's gonna show us that the real heart issue behind why these Corinthian believers wanted to keep going to the temple was really rooted in heart idolatry, something that they were absolutely convinced that they had to have 
in order to, to have meaning and purpose and life and have it to the full. So look what he does here in, in chapter 10, verse one. He starts off by reminding them of the, of the idolatry of the Israelites from the past, God's people from the past. He, he hearkens them back to the story of the Exodus, story of where God takes his people out of the land of Egypt where they had been slaves for 400 years and he miraculously, incredibly leads them out of under the hand of Pharaoh and oppression and slavery and he leads them uh, through the Red Sea and into the, the Sinai Peninsula which became the wilderness where they would be for 40 years because of their disobedience. And here's the key. I want to mention that disobedience. I mean, what he's reminding them of is you read, I'm not going to read them, but as you read the first 10 verses, he's telling them, remember what all God did for them. He led them by a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. That was the presence of God himself with his people. I want you to think about that for a second. Imagine you're walking around John's Creek and there's a bunch of us walking around and there's God's presence manifested in a pillar of fire or a cloud all the time. That'd be pretty incredible, right? Then he leads them to the Red Sea. They think they're gonna die. Pharaoh's army is coming behind them. And he opens up the sea. Crazy stuff. God's stuff. He opens up the sea and they walk through on dry land and then they watch behind them and as he closes the sea on their oppressors and they perish and wasn't it amazing how the Israelites see all these things happen? Then there's manna falling from the sky. All these things that are happening and they just kept worshiping their God. No, that's not what they did. They see all these incredible things happen and what do they do? When they've seen all that firsthand and they're at a place where they're resting at the, feet, uh, at the foot of Mount Sinai and Moses is up on that mount with Cloud and thunder and lightning happening in the presence of God as he gives him the Ten Commandments. Instead of worshiping this God who has delivered them so mightily, they're building a golden calf, worshiping an idol. You see, oftentimes I think, we think, man, if I could just see God do what he did back then, if I could see it right there in front of me, what, like a sea open, then I would never doubt. No, apparently not. The human heart has always been the same. And no matter what we see or don't see, we are prone to idolatry. One of the most famous quotes that I've heard in the church over the years is John Calvin's quote where he says that the nature of man's heart is to continually, perpetually produce idols. Things that we think we absolutely have to have in order to have full meaning and purpose and value and identity and life. This is what's going on here. Now, I want you to remember, if you weren't here last week, I'm gonna give you a quick recap of what Caleb told us. He explained to us that the temple was the epicenter of life for these people, for many of these people, for most of the people in Corinth. It was, it was where life happened. It was, it was the epicenter of social life. It was the epicenter of commerce business life, even familial life. Like, can you imagine? I'm a follower of Jesus now, but my family's not. They keep going to the temple. Can I go? And Paul's answer here in chapter 10 is that no, you can't go to the temple because that is idolatry. 
He explains here in this chapter, he says, you are partakers now of the body and the blood of Christ. You take of his, this bread and this wine, signifying that you are to dine on him and him alone. You have no part in dining with him and also with demons. Because idol worship is demonic. So no, you can't go to the temple. And can you imagine how tempting it would have been, how hard this would have been for many of these folks? Where so much of their life until this point, until they met Jesus, was centered around this pagan temple, and now they're realizing that I'm free from my sin, I'm free to know the God of the universe, but I'm not free to go there. Interesting, right? See, the world is so confused by Christian freedom. The world looks at Christian freedom and they hear us say things like this. You've got to, um, you got to submit yourself and surrender to the God of the universe under his good rule and reign under his goodness and his authority, and in so doing, in submitting yourself to his will and obeying his commands, in so doing comes great freedom like you've never known. And they go, well, freedom is doing what you wanna do when you wanna do it and how you wanna do it. Scriptures say, no, it's not. It's submitting to God. And in that is freedom and joy. Can you imagine how hard this would have been for the poor? Church history tells us that most of the early church were made up of the lower income class. And certainly there were some people probably in the church in Corinth who were well-to-do. But there were certainly many in this church who were poor. And can you imagine if their only source of protein came from the temple, the pagan temple, and now they're being told that because of your submission to Christ, now we will not participate in this pagan worship, and so no, you can't go to the temple and eat meat. How tempting it would have been to reject that and still go. This is where we get to the, the part in the chapter where for many of us, if we've grown up in or around the church, it's familiar language to us. This is a, this is a verse that many of us have memorized. Look at verse 12. It says this, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands, take heed lest he fall. Here's the verse that many of us have memorized. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to, to endure it. Now we memorize that verse and, and apply it to all temptation in all venues of life, which is not inappropriate. It's not wrong to do so. But I want us to understand the context of why Paul is saying this here. You have to remember, you gotta put your mind into first century Corinthian Christian mindset where it's like, okay, this is where so much of my life has been and now you're saying that because of my relationship with Christ, I can't go there. The temptation to still wanna go must have been great. And Paul is reassuring them. He's reminding them, there's no temptation that has seized you that is not common to man. Trust me, I will give you a way out. There is a way of escape. You think you still have to have that way of life. You still think you have to have that because without it, you don't know how to define life and meaning and purpose and value and identity apart from that. But trust me, you don't need it anymore. I will provide for you. I will be all that you need. And that's why he says in the very next verse, verse 14, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. 
This is an issue of idolatry that's going on here. So let me give you the first point of what I want you to remember this morning. First point is this. My determined freedom is often rooted in idolatrous desires. Not always, but often it is. Often the freedom that I determine is, is free. This is what freedom is, as Jeff defines it. If I really dig deep into the heart of my heart, why am I really wanting to go there and do that? It's often rooted in idolatry and idolatrous desires, things that I'm convinced that I need that will give me what only Jesus can. There is freedom in Christ, great freedom. But we have to understand that it's freedom to obey him. It's not freedom to indulge in the sinful nature. Listen to what Paul says in another letter that he wrote to the Galatians in 5.13. He says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh, the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. The, the issue of Christian freedom and idolatry really kind of comes down to this one, the answer, how we answer this one question. And here's the question. Whom or what do I most love? What is it or who is it that stirs my affection most that ultimately they or, or it is what gets most of my worship? Tim Keller defines idols like this. He says, what is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my, my life has meaning, then I'll know I have value, then I'll feel significant and secure. There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. I want us to think not so much anymore about necessarily the text and what Paul was dealing with with these Corinthians, but think about our lives now. Not many of us, some of us, certainly with some of the, uh, the ethnicities and worship habits of those around us. Some of us live next to neighbors who still have idol worship in the home. So I don't want to assume that none of us still deal with this in this world. But for most of us, what our struggle is not with some idol worship, some figurine that we're worshiping or something we've crafted made out of wood or metal, but our hearts. What is it that at the heart level we most tend to attach ourselves to convince that they will give us only what Jesus ultimately can? And so here's what I want to do. I want to share with you seven uh, of my idol idolatrous struggles, and I want to see if you identify. And I really hope that you do, otherwise I'm just going to be kind of having a personal counseling session up here that you get to watch. <laughs> but I hope you identify with these, some of my heart idols. The first one is this, my, my kids. My children, I'm, as I share each one of these, as I go through these seven, I'll, I'll give a little line behind it that kind of explains what I mean. This is what I mean. We, uh, we or I, I, I would say this is true of me for sure. I blur the lines between instruction 
and identity. Meaning, the scriptures say that we should, as parents, we are charged with the responsibility of instructing our children in the way that they should go. And how quickly that can become, in my heart, the way they go becomes my identity. I am so wrapped up in their success that I don't know how to define life apart from it. Now, should I care deeply about the success of my children? Absolutely, I'd be a poor father if I didn't. I should care deeply about them. I should love them the way that the Father loves me. I should model for them the love of God the Father. There should be all of that pouring out of me. But when I begin to move from caring about the development of their character and of their success in school or whatever it may be, and that moves from caring to obsession, to where my identity is wrapped up in that, then I know I have an idol. Let me also mention this. When we take the the call of God on the life of his people to be participants, consistent participants in the life and the work of his church, we take that call and we jeopardize it and even marginalize it because we are more committed to weekend activities for our children than we are the worship of our God, then we know we have an idol. It can be a great struggle for me in my heart. Another one is my screens. Some of you are saying, don't go there, Jeff. (laughs) My iPad, my, my phone, my TV, Netflix, whatever it may be. This is where I I blur the lines between leisure and addiction, laziness and rest. I think that it is my right that I don't have to lay down, that I am free to spend inordinate amount of times uh, of time looking at a screen and checking out because that's rest. Am I saying it's not, that it's wrong to do that? Like there should be, shouldn't be times where we do that? No, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying we know and I know oftentimes where that line has been crossed. It's probably not a good thing that I feel deep within me that I need to check my phone every minute. It's also probably not a good thing that when my phone is not in my pocket, my hip still vibrates. That's when you know an addiction has happened. That ghost vibration gets you every time. This is not me personally. I I don't live in this world, but I see it all the time with our youth. All those years doing college ministry, but I see it in my own home. I see it in, in the homes of those with young families. Xbox, Fortnite. Parents, listen. For far too many of us, I'm not judging you, I love you, I'm not coming down on you, I'm just simply stating the facts. Fortnite is raising our boys. Are we willing to admit that we've got a problem? That heart idolatry is at play, the freedom that we think is true freedom is no freedom at all, it's killing us. It's robbing us of true freedom that Christ longs for us to have. 
my job. I blur the lines between my hope being in how good I am at my job versus my hope being simply in Jesus and who he says I am. Do I really believe that, that I have freedom to fail in this job? Do I really believe that I have freedom to, to always not be on as a pastor? Do I really believe that I have freedom to give a mediocre sermon, which this may be, I don't know, <laughs> and still find my identity not in the success of my sermons, but in who God says I am? What about my status playing off that? This is where I blur the lines between how I'm perceived versus who God says I am. My possessions, this is where I blur the lines between who I am and what I have, far too easily believing a lie that what I have defines who I am. What about my comfort? This is where I blur the lines between what's easiest versus what's necessary. Far too often, what's easiest wins out. This is why it can be so easy for me to hand my kid a screen. Hey, watch this. I don't have the time or energy right now. That's when the idol of my comfort is taken over. The last one that I'll mention, there's probably 200 more, my reputation. This is where I blur the lines between my character and integrity and my ego. When my ego begins to take over, I care way too much about my reputation. What about you? What are the heart idols that you, you know, if you're willing to go there and if you're willing to let the Lord through his Holy Spirit raise these things to the surface, you know these are the things that I think I must have that carry with them a deep heart belief that these are more valuable and worthy than Jesus. And they can give me something that he can't. I almost included coffee, which I guess I just did. <laughs> and I mean, I'm, I'm kind of joking, but not really. But I, even looking at my own life, I love coffee. It's like, but do I, I become convinced that I can't function without it. Really? That I think I can't get through the day without coffee. Really? What about Jesus? You're like, Jeff, you're being silly. Maybe, I don't know. Think about it. I'm not endorsing that you have to stop drinking coffee. I'm just saying. But here's the point. Here's the second thing I want you to see is we get, I'm skipping to the end of chapter 10. I wish I had time to teach through everything that's in here. It's so good. But at the end of chapter 10, there's a summary. Summary of just a few verses where Paul summarizes everything he's just said in chapters eight, nine, and 10. And the summary is basically this, encapsulated in the second point that I want you to get today, and it's simply this. Christian freedom is always rooted in glory to God and imitating Christ. Look at the text. Look at what Paul says here as a summation to everything he's just shared about this issue. He says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, 
that they may be saved. And then I'm not sure why the men who did this were much, much smarter than me. So they apparently had a reason, but it makes no sense to me. 11.1 should really be the end of chapter 10 because it is the culminating verse of Paul's entire argument. He says this, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. I used to read that and think Paul's kind of arrogant. How can you say that? Be imitate, hey, imitate me because I'm imitating Christ. What, what Paul's not saying is he's not saying he's sinless or that he's perfect. He's just simply saying this. Look, my aim in everything that I do in all of life is to define my freedom in Christ by answering, does it glorify God and am I imitating Christ? And in everything that I'm doing, that's my aim. So as I aim for that, would you go with me? Would you follow with me in that aim as we imitate Christ together? Three really simple questions. I've already mentioned two of them, but just for the sake of, if you're a note taker, three really simple questions that we can ask ourselves to help us define where am I free to go there, to do that, to say that, where should I withhold? Where should I lay down my rights? First question is this from the text. Does it glorify God? Simple question, but profound implications. And oftentimes we know the answer. We know the answer. We know that when we ask that question and truly want to seek truth and say, does it glorify God? We know the answer is no. And we say, okay, I won't do it. Sometimes it's very clear because the issue that we're wanting to partake in is clearly sin. So it's easy to answer that question. Sometimes it's not sin. So it feels a little more foggy. So maybe we need a second question that says this. Does it go against my conscience? For those of us who are in Christ, our faith is in Jesus. That means that the Holy Spirit himself indwells us. That the God of the universe, his spirit is in us. And what he's doing is he's slowly but surely shaping us into his image, which means that he is giving us his conscience, marrying his conscience to our conscience. Now, for the non-believer, it's much, it's much more dangerous to, to trust the conscience, and even for the believer, it can be tricky because sin is still at play in our hearts, but we can begin to ask the question, does it go against my conscience? Trust that intuition from the Lord that this is not what I need to do or this is what I need to do. And then the last question, is it in line with the nature of Christ? I want you to consider Jesus as we wrap up here. I want you to consider what's true of Christ. What's true of Jesus is this. Jesus lived perfectly in every facet, including, and this is his two big umbrellas, the great commandment. He loved the Lord, his God, with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, meaning everything he did was to the glory of God. Everything to the glory of the Father. He states, my will is to, the will, is to do the will of the Father. And then he loved the, our neighbor. He loved his neighbor as himself. He laid down his rights in unthinkable ways for the sake of the other. So as we determine our freedom, those are the two, those are the two uh, stakes that we drive into the ground. Is it in line with the nature of Christ? Meaning, am I seeking to glorify him through Christ in me? And am I seeking the betterment of my neighbor? Am I loving them well? Am I taking up my cross? Jesus went to the cross. He humbled himself, didn't, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but rather he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Are we dying to ourselves regularly because in so doing there's true freedom? 
I want to circle back around to my story of freshman year. I was convinced that freedom was getting to do what I want to do, when I want to do it, how I want to do it. But I began to understand and learn that true freedom was submitting to Christ and obeying him. The world doesn't understand that, but do you? Let me uh, end with this. You'll notice in your bulletin that, uh, that I've put in there an application for this week. We've kind of been doing this recently where we've been putting questions for the week. And this week, I wanted to do an application for the week. We're just simply calling this Paul's five ground rules for, for Christian life that we get from those verses at the end of chapter 10. Here's what, I, what I'm gonna do. They're gonna be up on the screen and we're gonna spend just a moment in response to this sermon in silent reflection and contemplation, praying and asking God, would these five things be true of me? And let me give you a warning before we do this. The warning is this, if you approach these five things that are gonna be on the screen and in your bulletin from a legalistic standpoint, meaning I'm gonna do these things so that God will love me more and approve of me more, then you're missing the point because that's not what God desires. What God desires is he says, because of my love for you, because of my full acceptance of you in Jesus, because I see you and I adore you, the prayer becomes, God, because you love me, would you weave these things, these five things, more into the fabric of who I am, that they may flow out of me every day? So read these five things. Let the Lord speak to you during this time. Meet with him now, and then we'll sing together. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your grace and your goodness to teach us through your word, to give us insight and instruction. And we pray, Father, that you would use this time, even this short moment that we're about to have in silence before you as we consider these, these five truths from your word in 1 Corinthians 10. God, would you press them deep into our hearts? And, and God, we thank you that even though we are a people who are so quick to run after other lovers when you are the great lover of our soul, to chase after idols when you are the one true God. Lord, when we become convinced that there is something that is better than you, God, not only do you forgive us when we come to you, but you are ready and willing to show us afresh how awesome you are and how satisfying you are. So meet with us now, God. We pray in Jesus' name, amen been listening to the Perimeter Church podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.